That's pretty good stuff. Amen. We're all here because of God's amazing yes, Amen. grace. If you'd like to follow along this morning, we're going to start in John, go to Hebrews, back to Joshua, then to Genesis, all the way through to Revelation and back again. If you're visiting with us, we are very, very glad to have you and appreciate you coming. And hope and pray you get a blessing out of the service. We uh, have a group of folks here that come to get in, not to get out, and I will try to be respectful. I realize it's a special day, but it's His day, first and foremost, and so we're here to give praise and honor and glory to Him because without Him, there wouldn't be any reason for us to be in church. I've, I've learned this, I've learned that even as Christians in the day and time in which you live, you need a place to be able to run. And while it is important that if you're here today and you're lost, that means you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you should run to Calvary, no question about that. But oftentimes after we get saved, we need a safe harbor. We need a place of refuge. We need a place to be able to not walk to, but to run to. John chapter number 1, Jesus would have been up by now a long period of time. Might I remind you, He never slept, He never slumbered after the horrible crucifixion that took place on Calvary's cross and after the whipping, the nails have now pierced His hands and feet. He hangs upon the cross with a crown of thorns as you've heard sung about today already, his emaciated body from lack of water and food, now sweat and the loss of blood hangs upon the cross. He finishes his stint there in eternal regions of the damned with his soul paying the price of ransom for our sin. He comes back up and cries with a loud voice, with a loud triumphant voice, it is finished, and into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with that, his breath is released. Might I remind you, if you're not familiar with this, that the Lord did not have his life taken from him. He chose the place, he chose the hour and the time that he finally said, okay, I'm going to lay my life down, and turned his spirit back over to the Father went down into the heart of the earth there, and in paradise, Abraham's bosom showed up. Spent three glorious days down there with them. And on the third day, came up in a resurrected body that had not seen corruption. Now the sun has come up, probably sort of a crisp, cool morning, as the sheep and the lambs begin to get up and play in the pasture and the butterflies begin to stretch their wings, the morning doves begin to coo, there's a rustling there at the tomb. That's where we are now. There was a woman who rose up during that night. And if you know women, they have a tendency to worry. They have a hard time kicking it out of gear. I have no doubt that Mary Magdalene didn't sleep at all that particular night. And the Bible says the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. When it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. If you're following along, we're in John chapter 20, verse number 2. You apparently were not. I must not have said it. <laughs> Sorry. I was already at the tomb. Notice, then she runneth. Must not have been a Baptist. <laughs> we don't run to anything but supper. And cometh to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, not referring to himself by name, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. 
the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. Sheriff Daniels, you pray and ask the Lord to bless the message. Would you please, sir? Thank you. You may be seated. And while you're being seated, would you turn with me to Hebrews 6 and let me just sort of parenthetically catch you up on where we are. I'm going to try my best to draw a parallel, though Easter time, resurrection time as we know it, we don't celebrate bunnies and eggs here and those kind of things, although we have been known to bite the ears off of a chocolate bunny or two. That's why we think it's here, is to provide chocolate for those of us that don't get it the rest of the year, so we might bite the ears off the bunny. But this is the time of the year that the world has perverted the real meaning behind what has happened. That is the absolute most important day for us as Christians. It is more important than His birth, and can I say this, it is more important than the crucifixion. The crucifixion is an integral part of everything because without the shedding of blood there is no remission and you cannot preach a bloodless gospel. There has to be the shedding of blood in order to be their forgiveness of sin. But had Jesus Christ simply shed His blood and died on the cross as many martyrs have done before, had there been no resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Corinthians, we would have all men been most miserable because what sets Him apart from everyone else is He came up from the dead as He said that He would and resurrected from the grave. Had He not done that, the atonement would not have been completed and thereby we would be most miserable. Why? Because we would have absolutely no hope. Now what has happened though the Lord Jesus Christ has preached to His apostles and no doubt those people who have been in the uh, ground around Him, the people that have been attached to people that were next to them, without a doubt the women that were there, they all knew that He had talked of rising again on the third day. Yet they're no different than we are, even though the Lord will say it clearly in the Bible to us, we have the same doubts oftentimes in our life that, we, that they had. They said, well, you know, I know He said He was going to rise again, but we think they've stolen the body. Mary Magdalene goes out, might I remind you, she was nothing more than a prostitute. In one place the Bible said she had seven devils. Before you look shocked and appalled, might I tell you, Mary had a real serious problem, but she knew where to run to to get help. And in spite of the fact, ladies and gentlemen, that nobody else wanted anything to do with her except to utilize her for their privilege or pleasure, they didn't care, but Jesus cared enough and said, I can do something for you nobody else can do for you. And Mary knew where to go to get some help. I don't care how dirty you are. It's interesting to me that the first one that appears at the tomb was what you might consider to be the dirtiest one of all of the individuals. My mind races back to the book of Joshua and remembering those cities, that first city that shows up that we'll talk about in a minute. It has to do with the place for people to run that are dirty that are despicable, that are outcasts, that are filthy, that are unclean. You know, oftentimes we think that we've done things that the Lord can't forgive us of. If you're realistic and you're honest in your evaluation of yourself according to the Bible, you would have to agree there's none good, there's none righteous, there's none that seeketh after God. And listen, you would have to agree even after you're saved, sometimes you've fallen into the pig pen. Sometimes you've done some things that you need to be cleaned up from. And sometimes you're so dirty that only He can cleanse you. You can't cleanse yourself of your own guilt. You can't even cleanse yourself of the repercussions of the foolishness and those kind of things. But the Lord Jesus Christ made you a promise. So it's interesting to me that the first one that shows up at the tomb is an indicator of who it is that the Lord will help. You say, who will He help? Whoever says they need it. The whosoever will in the Bible is, is the individual that understands I need somebody to do something for me I can't do for myself. If you're too proud to accept charity, I don't have a message for you today. 
But I'm like the old preacher preaching in the prison one time and as he began to draw, he's drawing the crucifixion. He's showing the man in the middle and he's drawing the two thieves on either side. And he stopped and pauses in that big congregation of, of inmates, maximum security prison. And he says with that piece of chalk in his hand, he says, man, if I could just find me a sinner, I sure would have a good message for him. And he went to turn around and a big black guy stood up in the back and he said, me, 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 I'm a sinner. And Doc said, well, good, I got a good message for you. And he went back to drawing, and he got to drawing a little bit and got carried away, and he said, man, I'm going to tell you what. If I could just find me a sinner, I sure would have a good message for him. He said, I said me, I said me, I'm a sinner. And the old preacher said, Peacock, deal with that guy, man. Deal with that guy. Help that guy. And that big old guy came down that aisle way, walked all the way down in front of all of those other individuals in there, came right down on the front row, and I took a Bible, and he said to me, the first thing he said to me was, is, man, I've done some bad stuff, and I said, you wouldn't be in a maximum security prison if you hadn't. I wasn't shocked by it. Sometimes, you know what happens is, is when people come back to the Lord, we get shocked. Like that fellow I've told you about before that had his leg cut off in the motorcycle accident and had it clipped off just below the knee. And so I'm sitting there looking at him, and I didn't look horrified and shocked and that kind of thing. He says, how bad is it? And I said, well, you might walk with a limp from now on. <laughs> Sometimes we're shocked at what the Lord will say, what the Lord will help. I took that Bible and I said, the Bible says very, very clearly, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Are you laboring? Yes. Are you heavy laden? Yes. I have a burden on me that I can't shake. Even though I'm doing time for and I deserve to do time, there's something resting upon me. There's something heavy upon me. I can't seem to shake it. And I said, the Bible says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I said, if you'll trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, His death, His burial and His resurrection, Jesus Christ can clean you pure as a driven snow. Now, I remember that little girl in the prison not far from there coming up there while we were rolling up that picture and she was saying to me, uh, He can't clean me. He can't clean me. I quoted to her the same verses. And that female chaplain got down there with that woman and began to talk with her. And after she got done, it came time for count, and she began to walk out and go down the side of that room there. And as she began to go out the door, I just hollered at her. I said, did you get anything settled? Did you get anything settled? I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, I'm clean now. I'm clean now. I'm clean now. You say, why? Mary Magdalene was a very dirty person. Mary Magdalene would have been like the prodigal in the old in the New Testament there in the book of Luke where he went out into the pig pen and he made himself filthy and dirty. So dirty was he, no one would have wanted to be around him. Because he was a Jewish son, because he had been around pigs, he was not only dirty on the outside, he had been dirtied on the inside. And as a result of that, nobody wanted anything to do with him. And yet, you know what happens when he comes to himself and he comes back to the home of the prodigal father? The father greets him, gives him a robe, gives him a ring, gives him shoes and says, Listen, I don't care that you want to be a servant. You're still my son. No matter how dirty you are, I can still clean you up. Are you with me in the book of Hebrews there? If you would, please look. The Bible says this in verse number 18. The Bible says, make it 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. Immutable just means unchangeable. means that it can't be turned around. It can't be changed. And watch what he says. Confirmed it by an oath. He's going to swear by himself. Why? There's nothing higher to swear by than God Himself. That by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into and within the veil, whether, a forerunner, whether the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus, there's your anchor, there's your refuge, made a high priest, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Could you turn quickly to the book of Joshua, chapter number 20? Let me just give you a few illustrations. Preacher, what are you trying to get across to me? I'm trying to tell you, people need a place to run. People need to understand that even after they're saved, that the death, the burial, and the resurrection, Joshua chapter number 20, the death, the burial, and the resurrection made a provision for you. 
Now, if you're visiting, we believe in a, a doctrine, biblically, of eternal security. That doctrine is based on a promise made by the Lord who made you that promise. And the promise that He made was, is that now that you're saved, I'm going to seal you till the day of redemption. Uh, take, for instance, if you were a jar of beans, or corn, or okra. God help us, not okra. Um, a jar of ice cream. Homemade, with peaches and walnuts in it. Cooked on the stove until it's almost molasses and then frozen. And then put in a jar. Some of you know it's the time of year when the gardens began to come up. And that's the representation of the flowers here today of how pretty things are. They're not here in memoration of someone dying. They're here somebody has resurrected, someone has ascended, somebody has come up. When you see flowers on a gravesite, your mind should be as a Christian should think, oh, that means somebody has gone to a better life. Somebody looks better than they did when they were down here and the seed has gone in the ground. Look at that, man. That represents where they are now. Perfect, pure, holy, sinless, no more problems, no more difficulties, nothing else going on. That's what flowers represent. But you're sealed into the day of redemption. Stamped on that label is, is until death or rapture, nothing can touch your soul. So you're safe in spite of what your flesh may do. Now granted that you may have a problem with fellowship, but you haven't lost your salvation. I'm not going to retread you here this morning and make you doubt your salvation because you've done something you shouldn't do. If there's a time in your life you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior to be the sin bearer for your sins and you believe that He died for your sins, according to Scripture, was buried and raised again the third day and you trusted that to get you and nothing else, no works involved whatsoever, then you're saved. Well, I just believe, I, listen, we're going to go by what the Bible says. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't get saved by works. We're not kept by works. If you're looking to works to keep you saved, I'm glad that you need to understand a biblical doctrine. Again, because Bible doctrine makes good preaching, the biblical doctrine of salvation is my salvation doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Him. It's not even my salvation. When I got saved, He put me in His body, bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. I can't lose it. It don't have to depend on how I live. Because if, if it did, then I would be in a series of serious problems. Let's look at a place to run, and let me just give you a couple of very quick examples to give you an idea of what the Lord do. The first city that we find in verse number 7 is Kaddish. That's the one that I told you back. That Kaddish means a holy place. It means holy. It means a clean place. It means a place for somebody that's gotten dirty to run to. I'm glad he's always got plenty of blood to clean me from any sin that I may commit. I believe the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from ALL. I believe ALL means all. I don't care if what the trilateral root word says. I don't care what some scholar says. I believe the word all means all. That means you have to apply the blood. You say, Lord, what are you? I'm a sinner. He said, i got plenty of blood to cleanse you from your sin. I believe after I'm saved, He gave me a promise in that Bible involving blood again. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us and cleanse us and cleanse us of what? All unrighteousness. Preacher, you confess every sin? Well, I can confess the ones I know, but the great thing is, is that I have to confess the ones I know. What about the ones you don't know? He says, cleanse me from all unrighteousness if I just confess what I did do. Not to get resaved, right. but to get clean. I don't know about you, but generally speaking, I take a shower every day. Very few exceptions if I happen to be overseas or something like that and I can't do it. I learned something about myself... And I hate to have to admit it to you, and my wife probably wouldn't tell you, but if I had to make her tell the truth, she'd tell the truth. I've learned that after a short period of time, after I spring up out of bed in the morning, and I get my morning coffee, and all of a sudden I notice there's a smell in the room. And it's me. And I need another bath. You say, why? While I was sleeping, I was rotting. While I was sleeping, I was developing a smell. I learned that I shower on a regular basis not to get reborn, simply to get clean again. 
And what you have to understand is, is that after you're saved, where so many people get confused and say, oh, well, you need to get saved. You must not be saved because you did this and you did that. You haven't read Galatians chapter 5. You can do anything but go to hell after you're saved. If you give yourself over to the flesh, what did the Lord provide for you? He provided a way of cleansing for the unclean, for those that are dirty, those that are despicable, those that have done something that is wrong to do. The Lord says, here's what I'll do for you. I'll wash you in the blood of Jesus Christ and I'll clean you again. And I hate to tell you this, but I have to take more than one of those baths just like I have to take more than one bath for my flesh on a regular basis. Notice, second of all, this place called Shechem. Shechem here in this city here, he says, the Mount of Naphtali and Shechem in the Mount of Ephraim. Preacher, what does Shechem mean? Shechem simply means a shoulder. It means a place for the hurting. It means a place for the discouraged. You know, oftentimes we act as Christians sometimes like we're not supposed to get upset, we're not supposed to be bothered, not supposed to be discouraged. But the fact of the matter is, is depression is something that can happen to anybody. Things didn't go the way you thought they should go. You know, I want to always blame everybody else. It's somebody else's fault and, and those kind of things. And the next thing you know, you're laden down with problems, with difficulties, with troubles. The kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, the, this goes prodigal, that happens. The job doesn't come through. The bills aren't paid. Different things happen. Guess what happens? You wind up getting very, very discouraged. And you know what the Lord says? I got a good place for you to lay. I had a cross here at one time and it's made a nice soft place for you to be able to lay now because I've carried that burden for you. If you'll cast your care upon me, you say what? The Lord's got his shoulder there. I've so often thought and many times have used the illustration of the shepherd going out to look for the sheep. And he finds him down maybe at the bottom of a crevice, tangled up in the weeds and tangled up in the briars. Its wool is all matted and messed up and the wolves are beginning to close in. The bugs are beginning to get around it. It can't even shake its little legs loose to be able to scratch the bugs off. It's petrified. It's scared to death. It's entangled. It's entrapped. There's nothing it can do. And all of a sudden that shepherd looks down there and sees that little sheep and he hears that little sheep and that, that, that little lamb hears the voice of the shepherd. And I think he cries out for help, but I also think he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have left. I shouldn't have gone out of the flock. I, I shouldn't have done it. I'm, I'm sorry. And that shepherd begins to find his way down the steep hillside there, across the rocks, endangering himself as he gets there. And very carefully, as a mother would take a newborn child and wrap him and put him in the crib, he begins to break the little limbs and to take the thorns and the thistles away and begins to work it where he can get it loose so that all of a sudden the little lamb comes loose. And the little lamb most likely is trembling, he is shaking, he's scared, he's thinking, man, surely he's going to beat me. And instead, the shepherd takes that lamb up and puts him up on his shoulders. And that little lamb puts that head right down here on the shoulder of that shepherd and that little velvety nose is right there next to that shepherd's ear and that shepherd's listening to every whim and every cry of that little lamb as he lays there and begins to bleed out, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And that shepherd just strokes that little nose and says, well, it's okay now. I can't make it back to the flock on my own. Don't worry, I'll carry you back. I've gone too far. I'm too worn out. The world has taken advantage of me. The world's beat me down. I, I am completely emaciated. I haven't had anything to eat. I haven't had anything to drink. I'm, I, I've gone way too far. I'm too tired. It's beyond my capability to get back. You know what the shepherd would tell the sheep? You're right. You can't make it back on your own. You know what you need? You need me to help you. That's why I gave you a shoulder to lean on. You know what, in times of difficulty and problem, you know what you need? You need something other than just a physical friend to lean on. You need a spiritual friend in the name of Jesus Christ to be able to lean on. You say, what is that? That's what this resurrection means because he's alive right now and the shoulder is available to you right now that are hurting. You've got problems, you've got difficulties, you have things that you can't seem to overcome. You say, well, you're telling me he can? I'm telling you he can overcome anything. You know what he says? Be not afraid for I have overcome the world. There's six cities, and man has five senses, six if he's saved. Notice also there's another city here, and that city happens to be Hebron. Hebron is a place of fellowship. It's a place of 
for homeless people, for disinherited people, people that have lost everything, lost their wife, lost their kids, lost whatever it might be. Do you realize that once you get into the body of Jesus Christ, you never ever have to worry about having a home to come to? I remember that old sheriff up in Paulding County, just below where Buford Pusser was. My dad told me the story. His name was Grady Wilbanks. He's a tough old guy. Carried a gun in the car, didn't even carry it with him, but he carried a stick too. Oftentimes would pick my dad up and they would go to family fights and things like that. And after he got him separated, he'd have my dad try to talk to him and see if he couldn't try to give him some spiritual counseling. A strange thing because the man was lost. One day they were out squirrel hunting. My dad's out there walking along and he shot a squirrel and uh, the squirrel didn't quite get hit with all the pellets and he's kind of up there hanging as they'll do. He's just sort of hanging on and clinging on and that kind of a thing. And my dad raised his gun again and went to shoot him. He said, hang on just a minute, preacher. Hang on, just hang on just a minute. Just wait a minute now. Wait a minute. And all of a sudden that squirrel's heart stopped like that and that squirrel let go and he turned loose and he fell right at the feet of that old sheriff up there in Paulding County, Paulding County Grady Wilbanks. And my dad looked at that squirrel and he said, you know something, Sheriff? One day your heart's going to stop and you're not going to stop until you find yourself in hell. And he said that sheriff looked down there and he looked at that squirrel and he looked up at the preacher and he said, well, I guess I probably should do something about that. And my dad took him over to an old log out there and they laid their guns up against the side of that tree and got down there next to that log. And my daddy said that sheriff took that old 10-gallon hat off knelt down there by that log and said, Lord, I don't want to be like that squirrel. When I die, I want to be able to go up, not down. Oh, it can't be that simple. Oh, it is that simple. It's so simple you'll miss it if you can't just turn loose and trust Jesus Christ. You say, why? Because when it comes time to die, there's no greater decision. You know what happened that day? That sheriff found him a home in heaven that will always be his home in heaven. In John chapter number 14, the Lord said, hey, listen, you don't need to let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. God's got a place for you even if everybody else doesn't want you around. He's got a home for you. Most important home you could ever have is a home with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're here today, and maybe you might remember uh, years ago when I was down not far from where Brother Jerry used to live. Miss Sandy used to live down there. Joni was a little bitty thing back in those days. Now she's married, got a kid on her her own, lives in Alabama, but she's back home for a little while here. And was down there in a place called Hampton. He was preaching a message and a policeman came and sat right down here where Brother Brad and Kevin are sitting here on the second row. And he sat there, swole up like a toad frog. Looked like an old swelled up prune. Just wrinkled up and froze up like that. He came because he knew what I had done in the profession before his wife talked him into coming. I think she blackmailed him to come. And I, I remember I preached a message called The Point of No Return. And I remember that old cuss who no doubt had seen some horrible, terrible things in his life. I remember him sitting there with that scowl on his face as if to say, bless me if you can and I'm just doing this for my wife. And he just scowled and scowled. And I went through some terrible, terrible illustrations, some bloody illustrations, some untimely deaths and car wrecks and murders and suicides and things trying to sort of wake the people up and help them to understand their need for Jesus Christ. And he just sat there, boy, I mean, didn't even move at all. Came invitation time, and I've seen God work miracles sometimes at invitation time, and got ready to give the invitation, and boy, he just sat there during the invitation. He finally stood up as they were singing and just folded his arms. In those days, you would go out to the very back back there, and you would shake people's hands as they came by, and they would lie to you and tell you, that was a good sermon, enjoyed that, you know, that, you know all that kind of a stuff. You know, Baptist lie, you know, it make you feel good though. Oh, it was wonderful, that was wonderful. Then they get out the door. That's the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. And he mispronounced this and you know, and so on and so forth. Well, I made it a point. I saw him coming and I made it a point. And he tried to sort of step out past the lady over there. And I stepped in front of the lady and I said, Sir, I sure do appreciate you coming today. I understand you're a policeman and retired now. And he goes, Yeah, what of it? And I said, Well, I just wanted to thank you for your service. I said, I appreciate it. You put your life on the line for 32 years. And I said, that's something to be, to be proud of. And I said, I, I just want you to know I appreciate it. Yeah, what of it? And I said, uh, well, I said, I'm sure you've heard all of those stories before. Probably seen that and then some. Yeah, a lot worse than you told. Okay. Now we're going to match war stories or something, you know. 
I said, well, I just wanted to thank you for coming anyway. I realize it's probably inconvenient for you and probably hard for you to sit there and listen to a bunch of war stories that don't matter to you. And he said, yeah, not much. And he went out and got in his truck. Back in those days, you had beepers. You didn't have phones. If you had a cell phone, it weighed 400 pounds. And if you had it, it, you dropped it, it would break your foot. And some of us had them, but you never used it because as soon as you used it, it ran up a bill about that long, and one minute was $20,000 or something like that. And so the next thing you know, you're standing upstairs going, why did you use the phone? Uh, They were about to murder somebody. Go to a pay phone in the future. We're going to take that out of your pay. So you never used it. I mean, it was there, but you didn't. So my pager's going off, you know, it's beeping and that kind of a thing. I can still remember it. And I'm looking at the number, and I recognize the number from where I was, and I ran into the house. Drina Lim was with me. I ran into the house, and I picked up the phone and called down there, and it was that preacher. And he said, hey, preacher, how are you doing? And I said, hey, I'm doing fine, man. Is everything okay? And he goes, well, he goes, you remember that policeman sitting down there? And I said, yeah, man, I sure do. Now, you know what I'm thinking. He got saved. <laughs> he said, his wife is here with me now. And then I kind of thought, uh-oh. And I said, okay, well, what happened? He said, well, we was driving, he was driving home in that pickup truck after he left, and he said, you know how that fog will kind of get in from those swamps down in the hollow? And I said, yeah, and he said, he went through one of those things and slipped off the side of the road and ran right into a concrete uh, uh, in, uh, a ditch and embankment right there, a concrete drainage system. Killed him on the spot. He said, the reason I'm calling you is, he said, his wife saw him back there talking to you and was just wondering if maybe he had made a profession of faith. Man, my heart sunk. I'm searching for words. I immediately had cotton mouth, man, and I'm thinking, I said, preacher, I hate to tell you, I said, he made no indication whatsoever that he wanted anything at all to do with Jesus Christ. And he said, I was afraid of that. I heard his wife begin weeping in the background. She overheard what I said on the phone. You say what? You know what he was? Because he didn't accept the home he had for him in heaven, the devil prepared a place for him also that was prepared for the devil and his angels, and he's going to join him and is in eternity right now burning. So you don't know that for sure. If he never trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he's there right now burning. And if the Lord opened up this floor and you could see him, he would be down there screaming and burning and saying, he's telling you the truth, he's telling you the truth. But when you get to that place, you can't change your mind. Just a couple of more. It's a place for the homeless. It's a place for the disinherited. People have oftentimes lost everything they have and they think because of that nobody wants them. Jesus Christ wants you. The world will disinherit you. Your friends will disinherit you. I might even tell you your wife or your husband might even divorce you. Jesus Christ will never do that. You know what he'll say to you? You want a place to come? You want a home to come to? Come on into me. I'll give you a place of rest. I'll be a refuge for you. You can run to me when nobody else will take you. I'll take you. You say, what does he do? He'll take you no matter what your condition is. All you have to do is admit you need him. It's literally that simple. Notice Hebron is there, and then notice the next city is called Bezer. What is Bezer, preacher? Bezer is a fortified place. It's a strong place. It's a place for the the helpless, for those people that are are disdained by the rest of the world. It's a place where people that can't seem to get help anywhere else can get help in Him. I like to call it the place where the people that have been bullied can always run to the fortified place for help. Many of you have heard me use the story, the illustration before of Herbie. Herbie would not be somebody that we would naturally just accept as an individual. Knock-kneed, pigeon-toed, his thumbs were turned in this way ever since I'd known him. His socks looked like they were socks on his teeth. His breath would blister the paint off the wall at at least 50 feet. I mean, and he could not sing a lick. He wouldn't fit in most Baptist churches. Every song he sung, he sung the same way on the same key and sang the same words to every song. Something like this. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. And smile. You know what the Lord was hearing? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch 
like me. Herbie would say, I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. What did everybody else hear? Not the same thing the Lord heard. You know, oftentimes we stop and think that people that we wouldn't take, the Lord's like, I'll take them. I mean, people like, for instance, David, an adulterer and a murderer, David, the Lord said, I'll take him. People like Moses who murdered a man and buried him in the sand, the Lord said, I'll take him. People like Saul who persecuted the church, who made orphans out of children, who killed husbands and wives and jailed them. And the Lord said, you know something? I can do something for him. I can change him. I can make him a different person. Yeah, but Lord, look at his past. Yeah, but look at his future. But Lord, I mean, look at the mess that he made. Yes, I know, but look at the blood of Jesus Christ that in spite of the mess that he made, look at what he can do in the future and gave you 13 epistles written by a murderer in your Bible because why? God will take those people that are disinherited, discombobulated, people that nobody wants. They're disdained by the rest of the world. Who would want a Herbie? Jesus. You would like Herbie, you say, why? I actually think Herbie was the sane one of the bunch. You could talk about Herbie and he'd say, I love you. He's like a drunk. You never did nothing wrong. Hey, Herbie, how are you doing? Fine. Man, you stink. I love you. Totally, Herbie, you're, 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 you're dirty. You're nasty. I love you. You're the preacher boy. And then hug you till your eyeballs popped out. It's like, oh, turn me loose. I love you, you the preacher boy. You say, surely the Lord can't take somebody like me. Oh, the Lord will take anybody. And the problem is nowadays we've made Christianity this kind of thing that it's only for the upper crust. It's only for the uppity. It's, it's one of those kind of things. It's just a, a first class ride. Listen, the Lord does His best work with those of us that are in steerage. You don't need to look for him walking through the first class cabin looking for first class people. He's looking for the outcasts in life. He's looking for the misfits in life. He's looking for the fishermen. He's looking for the sailors. He's looking for the dirtiest of the dirtiest. The vile of the vile. He's looking for the prostitutes and the drug addicts. He's looking for the drunks. He's looking for people with grease under their fingernails and splinters in their hands. He's looking for people with sweat running down their back and having troubles and trials, but they know they have a need. Soldiers and sailors, misfits of society, disdain, despicable, criminals, outcasts. The Lord says, oh, I'll take you. I'm making up an army. I could really use you if you're discomfited, if you're disquieted, if you're in debt, if you're distressed, if you are depressed. Woo, I'm looking for you. I need somebody that knows they have a need, not somebody to come to me because, hey, let me tell you what I can bring to the table. No, you know what the Lord says? If you know you got a need, I think I can help you. Let's hurry. Notice not only there's Beezer, but there's Ramoth. And that's a place for the hopeless. Ramoth is one of those kinds of places where people that have no other hope can run to. Maybe you haven't been in that situation. Maybe you haven't lost someone so dear to you that it seems as if your world is not exploding, it is imploding. Maybe you can't seem to reason with anybody. They don't understand what you're going through. And stupidly they try to say, Hey, you know, I know how it feels. No, you don't. You're an idiot. You do not know how this feels. You can't know how it feels because you were not connected emotionally to what I lost or who I lost. You know what the Lord says? Oh, I, I, could, I can relate to that. I know exactly what you need. I have been there, done that, got the t-shirt, coffee mug, placemat, baseball hat. I mean, I got tickets to the skybox on that one. Every need you have, I can supply. You know what you have to do? Quit running to people. Run to Him. 
Lord, uh, I, I'm in a really bad spot here. I, I, I don't get it. Nobody else gets it. Nobody can give me any sins, I, I, any help. Uh, nobody can make any sins. Hey, listen, I, I'm a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. I've gone to see every doctor. I've seen every physician. I've done everything. I mean, I have had eye of Newton, wing of bat. I've taken baking soda until it's running out my ears. I've done every natural thing there is to do. I have gone to see every doctor there is to see. Well, there's a new doctor in town. What is his name? His name is Dr. Jesus. Oh, he ain't going to want to talk to me. The best of the best of the best physicians have tried their best to help me. Oh, but you haven't met this doctor. Well, no, but I've met many doctors. As a matter of fact, I've spent all that I have. Oh, well, here's the great thing. It don't cost you nothing. All you have to do is come. All you got to do is come. You just need to come. You need to come. You need to come. And she says, well, I've tried everything else. I've spent all I have. And then she ran into the great physician. And he touched her and she was healed. You say, why? He's got a cure for whatever ails you. You say, all you have to do, what? Come. What do I give him? (laughs) Your trouble, your problems, if you're lost, your sins. If you're saved, your sins, because that's what's separating you. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about on resurrection morning, they ran to the tomb to look for the one, and he wasn't there. Where was he? He was fixing to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth and maketh intercession. Why? He's there for you today to run to. The problem is, is we don't make enough haste in running to him. Notice last of all in this city, these cities, you'll find Ramoth, the, gold, the, the hopeless place. And then you find Golan. Golan is a place for hindered individuals, for those that get distracted. Golan uh, simply means a separated place. You know, the most difficult thing for people to understand is, is that Christian biblical separation is done to protect, not to hinder. Biblical separation works off of this principle. Most people that get in trouble do not get in trouble by themselves. That's a good thing to teach your kids. Everybody ain't good to hang out with. Even if they do claim to be Bible believers. Some Christians are butthead, or excuse me, jerks. Oh well, it's out there now. At least I didn't use what I did in Sunday school. Yeah. Or did I just use it? Some Christians, just because they're saved, doesn't mean they're always good to hang out with. Sometimes they're just jerks. Sometimes they're hard to get along with. You say, what do you have to do? Get away from them. But the separated place is to protect you. You say, why? We always tell them when they get out of prison. Time and time again. Now, can I just say this to you? Look, I haven't ever been to prison as an inmate. Some of you laugh like maybe I should or something. I've been on the other side of that. And I have always been able to see that in the state of Florida, we have an 80% recidivism rate. That means a, a revolving door. You know why we tell them when you get out? Find you a good Bible-believing church and change the company you were keeping. You say, why? It matters who you hang out with. It makes a difference. The company you keep. What is it I'm looking for? I'm running to Him to separate me from people that will separate me from Him. If they're not on the same page, I don't need to be around them. That's why I like to hang around my church family. The company you keep matters. Most times when we get into sin, it's because sometimes we reassociate with old friends, electronic or otherwise. Television, internet, flake book, back with the old friends. Not really stepping off into the pig pen, just how close can I get without getting dirty? I mean, I'm doing pretty good, better than most. It ain't going to ever catch me. 
I mean, it'll catch everybody else, but I'm smarter than all these idiots I hang out with. That's the lie the devil's been telling Christians for years. But the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. I'm trying to hurry, but I'm wanting you to see a point. That because the Lord died and was buried and raised again the third day, it does you absolutely no good if you do not run to Him. For some of you, this is a special day, a house full of people. Praise the Lord for that. But what I'm preaching to you does you no good if you do not activate it. You must apply the book. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2 that the Word of God works effectually in you that believe. How do I know I believe? I act on it. I hate to use the illustration, but it's what comes to my mind right now. I believe that chair will hold me up. Right? And then I walk off. Do I really believe it? Well, if I believe it, why don't I sit in it? Once I sit in it, I've activated that belief. I've showed you I believe it by doing something with it. I had a guy tell me not long ago, I was dealing with him about the most important thing, believe it or not, and it wasn't his marriage, it wasn't his job, it wasn't his kids, it was about his soul. Something that very few people care much about, you know, when they're wanting to do what they want to do. And I was dealing with him about his soul, and I simply said this to him, I said, hey, listen, if I'm right, then you got a problem. If you're right, there's no problem. But if I'm right, there's an eternity with the devil. I said, now why wouldn't you at least pause? He goes, you know, I believe there's a God. Okay. You believe in God, believe also in me. Lord, how do we know the way? I am the way. Not God. I'm God manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and life. You have to believe in Jesus Christ to get there. Amen. Well, preacher, I don't really know that I believe that. Well, I hate to tell you this, but that's what the Bible says. Well, that's just your opinion. Okay, well, wait till eternity and we'll see. Wait till the day that you kick the bucket and everybody's gathered and you're already gone and we're either over the box or we're over whatever it might be and we're getting ready to have your funeral service. You will then know the absolute truth. It will not take five seconds in hell for you to become a believer. You will absolutely become a believer at that moment. Well, I just don't believe in hell. That's because you're trying to air condition it. If you run to the city of refuge, maybe you don't know this and maybe you do. It was a factual thing that you were allowed to stay there in that city and be protected by being in that city. And when the high priest died, you were allowed unequivocally to go free. Well, if you've run to Jesus Christ, your high priest is Him and He's already died and therefore you are now free from the sins that you've committed in the past, the present, and the future. Would you allow me just a moment or two just to give you a quick illustration? It's a horse illustration, so you'll probably like it. My dad had a horse named Duke. We had horses... I'd prayed for one for 10 years. I got one. People say, your dad got it for you. Jesus got me that horse. He used my dad as a wrench to do it, but Jesus got me that horse. It acted like the devil a lot of times, but Jesus is the one that got it for me. My dad wanted to ride with us. Mr. Harl Smith said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go with you. We're going to go to the Tennessee Walker Farm and we're going to get you a Tennessee Walker. My dad said, we can't afford no horses like that. I'm a preacher. I can't afford to have no Tennessee Walker. That's those kinds that hit about five to eight gates and their table, their back is like a table and they walk and that head goes up and that tail goes up and you're riding on it. You could drink a cup of coffee on that thing and never shake a drop out of it because they're just as smooth. I mean, you talk about riding a uh, smooth riding horse. It's like riding in a Bentley or something, man. I mean, it's just like you don't even realize there's bumps in the road. It's like, it's like that. It's just like you just set it and it drives. We go to that place. Those floors were so clean you could have eaten off of them. The stalls and stuff, they had these cedar stalls with little bars in there and you slid them out of the way and you slid them open and closed and they all had hoses in there and everything. I mean, it was, I mean, it was immaculate. You could go in there and have a Sunday dinner. It was that immaculate. 
I don't even think they had horse poop in there very long. <laughs> we were walking around in there, and you start looking on the gates at what they're starting to ask for, for what those horses cost. It's kind of like, we way out of our price range. <laughs> I mean, we're supposed to shop at Walmart. We ain't supposed to be in these places. You kind of go back out on the outside and that thing says some fancy story. You're thinking, oh, oh okay, I get it. This is um, <laughs> Saks Fifth Avenue. Yeah, we're in the wrong place. I, I look for Kmart, Walmart, some kind of mart. <laughs> right? Sale today. So my dad's walking around. He said, Mr. Harl, we, we, we can't afford these. He said, let me just look around him in here, preacher. He's a real horseman, you know. And so my dad goes around the corner. I lost him for a while. I was enamored with that stuff, watching him in the lunging pen working those horses. My dad hollered at Mr. Harl. and said, I found me a horse. I found me a horse. He said, good. Where is he, preacher? He said, come on. I'm showing it to you. He said, right here around this corner. <laughs> Mr. Harl said, preacher, you can't have that horse. He said, that horse right there, he said, that's been trained by the best and couldn't be trained. He said, that horse is out there. They're fixing to shoot that horse and load him up in the front end loader and put him on a dump truck and take him for glue. My dad said, but I like it. Mr. Hall said, Preacher, let me get you another horse. You can't have that horse. He said, but I'd like to get that horse. We went around to get that horse, and I'm thinking, ooh, that horse is more like a lion. I mean, it was mean. It backed up in that corner, them ears laid back, them teeth were showing. He reared up and pawed just like you'd see in the movies. And I'm like, somebody's going to die. <laughs> he ain't going to be me. I mean, I knew a little bit about horses, but I knew enough about horses to say, that thing's bigger than me and I ain't getting in there with that thing. Right. It took four guys to get a hold of that thing and they put blindfolds on him. Let me hurry with the story. That horse had so many whip marks on him. And back in those days, they used chains on Tennessee walkers. They put them on their, uh, around their hocks. And th what that would do was make them pick their feet up. So when they took the chains off, those muscles would be strong. And they would pick those feet up when they would get into the gate called a canter. And so they would pick up those things and look almost like they were dancing. Man, he had chain marks. They were all covered up with all kind of scabs and sores and oozing sores and pus and bugs and flies and maggots. and It was just nasty old slime and stuff like pink eye coming out of his eyes, stuff running out of his nose, man. And I'm thinking, no offense, Dad, but I think you're crazy. And they loaded that horse up. He got so crazy, he went under a railroad trestle. He raised up and banged his head on the top of that trailer and caused that thing to come up off of the thing, and the chains caught it. And we had to pull over and get a jack and get the thing back up and get the trailer back in there. Got him to the stall. He kicked two slats out of that stall as soon as we put him in there. My dad never missed a beat. He said, bring me them four-by-fours. And he crossed them four-by-fours and an X like that behind those broken slats. And he put him in there and shut the gate. Every day he'd go by there and he'd try to hand him some sweet feed. And Duke would back up in that corner, back up in that corner, show his teeth and all that. And he'd just dump it out. And he'd just talk to him real quiet. He called Mr. Harl one day. He said, I need the name of your vet. I'll never forget it. Mr. Harl said, Preacher, you don't need to put that horse down. Let me do that. He said, I'll... I'll take care of everything. He said, I'm, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. He goes, I don't want to put him down. He said, I want the vet to come by here to give him a shot so that I can knock him down long enough to kind of get his sores and stuff cleaned up. Mr. Harl said, Preacher, I don't think my vet is even going to come in there, but I'll call him. Well, he called him and he came out there. That vet came in. had a little orange uh, uh, toolbox with him. He got out. You know what he did? He walked in there. He took one look at Duke. He set that box down. He said, I'm not going in there with that horse. He said, Mr. Peacock, he didn't know he was a preacher. He said, Mr. Peacock, he said, that horse is a killer. He said, you get in there, somebody's going to get killed. You need to get rid of that horse. That is not a good horse. He said, I know where that horse came from. He's papered and everything else. He said, but can't nobody handle that horse. That's the best trainers in the world can't handle that horse. I'm not having nothing to do with it. Dad, he said, well, let me ask you, if I can get him to come by over here by the fence, will you stick him for me? And, and he said, if you can get him over here, I will. But he said, I'm not going over that fence. Well, Dad managed to coax him over there, and he hit him right in the hind end with that big old syringe, man, and he got it in him, and, of course, Duke didn't like it at first. It was like a bee bit him or something, and he kicked and bucked and did all kind of crazy foolishness, and then directly his eyes kind of rolled back, and he's kind of like, okay, this is all right with me. <laughs> I can feel it today when that big old 1,200-something-pound horse just fell over, just literally just, just hit the concrete, and the vet said, you got about 15 minutes. Man, betadine was flying, and scrub brushes and all kind of other stuff. The cool thing was is they wrapped him up in racing wraps like a, like a thoroughbred, you know. I thought, that looks pretty cool, man. We got a racehorse. Can't nobody ride him, but he looks like a racehorse. 
His old bones were showing, his hip bones were showing, his ribs were showing. Man, he was nasty looking. He came out of there, man, he looked like he'd been through the car wash and all the foam stuck to him. He had so much antiseptic and stuff all over him, it wasn't even funny. It was everywhere. He got back up, and long story short, my dad finally got to the point he could get in the stall with him, and he'd get him to come over and take some feed out of his hand. If you raised your hand like that, just that much around him, he would rear up and back off and try to hit you because he was hand shy. He'd been, every time somebody raised their hand, it was to smack him. So if you raised your hand, he thought you were going to hit him. I know that because dad was in there with him one day, and I raised my hand, and my dad just looked at me like, you fool. <clears throat> you're going to get me killed, you know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, too late now. He's banging his head up on the roof of that thing, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and Dad finally gets him calmed down. Well, eventually he got a halter on him. And it wasn't long before he got a rope. He'd take him in that little old 10 or 10 by 10, 12 by 12, you know, he'd just kind of walk him around, you know, handing him sugar cubes and sweet feet as they'd walk like this. He'd talk to him right there in his ear, just talking to him. Hey, big boy, how you doing? You doing all right? Everything going okay? You like your new house here? Are we feeding you enough? Do you need some more food? How are you feeling? Just like you'd talk to a person, you know. Just I'm thinking, my dad's lost his mind. We're out riding horses, you know, and playing roping cattle, doing all kind of crazy stuff, you know, all that kind of stuff. We come in, we're sweating, the horses are sweating. He's in there walking around with Duke, you know, just talking to him. One day, to make the long story short, my daddy said, I'm going to ride Duke today. And I said, I'm going to get to see you thrown today. I didn't say it out loud, I knew better. <laughs> but I thought, you've laughed at me when I got thrown, I'm going to laugh at you when you get thrown. I said, how are you going to ride him? And he said, somebody had given my dad this real fancy western saddle. He said, I'm going to ride him western. And now I really started laughing. I said, he said, call Mr. Harl. I called Mr. Harl. I said, Mr. Harl, dad's going to ride Duke today. And he said, What? He said, do not do anything until I get there. He said, how's he going to saddle him up? And I said, a Western saddle? He said, put your daddy on the phone. He said, preacher, that horse has only ever been ridden English at all. He said, if you even manage to get a saddle on him, the second he feels that Western saddle on him, he will know it is different, and he is going to throw you. Preacher, please do not get on that horse. He said, Mr. Hall, everything's going to be fine. You just come on out here if you'd like to, but I'm going to ride Duke today. By now, his ribs weren't showing. His hips had filled in. And though there were a lot of scars on him, they had healed up. And now all that stuff in his eyes and drainage had gone away and the stuff coming out of his nose. Yep. I remember he said, open the gate, boy. And I have to admit, kind of devilishly, I'm like, gladly. Because <laughs> most horses, when they know they're loose, it's kind of like, we're we, we going to run. So I'm like, hang on there, big boy. I remember as he came by me, I can see it just as plain as if it was yesterday. He leaned over in that saddle so he didn't hit his head on the beam across the double door there. And he said, show him what you got, big boy. And the horse went out and I got to the lunging pen and I opened that thing up. As soon as I got it open, I closed the gate behind him and I crawled up on that little post right there and I got me a good spot and I'm like, here we go. Showtime! He never put a spur on him. Amen. He never raised his hand. He never even hit him with the reins. He said, up one boy. Duke stepped up, started walking, just as smooth as could be. After he got him kind of familiar, people were kind of watching and stuff. The word had sort of spread a little bit. Up one more big boy. He comes around and he kind of picks it up just a tad and hits that second gate. About that time, Mr. Harl comes sliding into the parking lot. Man, he jumps out. He comes running up there. He said, where's he at? Where's he at? I said, it's right there. He said, but where's, where's the horse at? And I said, that's him. He said, that ain't him. Amen. I said, yes, sir, that is him. He said, he didn't look anything like that the last time I saw him. I said, Mr. Harl, it's him. Look at the scars. Look at the whip mark. That's, that's the same horse. And he said, is your dad okay? And I said, I don't know, sir. You tell me. One more boy. That horse hit all five gates, and he got to that fifth gate. He kind of was catching on like people were looking just short of applauding. And now I'm a little bit disappointed. 
but excited too. And I remember he hit that final gate and I saw that back flatten. And I saw those legs going like a machine. I mean going to town. Man, I mean kicking up that dirt, man. You could see the hooves going up and you could see the shoes on those hooves shiny. Boy, he was working them feet, working them feet, working them feet. And the tabletop, that old preacher just sitting up there almost like a drink a cup of coffee. The reins are slack on Duke's neck and he's just watching him and all he's saying to him is, boy." That a boy, that a boy. And all of a sudden, Duke comes around and that tail goes up and that head goes up like that. And man, he looked like a picture going around that thing. Amen. He worked so hard, he developed this white lather that they get on him sometimes where the reins and stuff are on him. And after a little bit, he said, okay, boy. And he eased him up right there and walked him over there to the barn. Hosed him off real good and squeezed him down. He's patting him and talking to him the whole time. We're out there talking. We are in amazement. And lo and behold, here comes Dad. And I see the rope down here on the ground. And he's not holding it. Duke's head is over my dad's shoulder. And he's just scratching his nose like this. And he said, a boy, big boy. And he walked out there and I thought, ain't that something? He's following him like a dog. He gets there to the side of the going into the big field there where the pasture was and he opens up the gate and Duke just stands there by him and Dad says, you're home now, boy. Duke walked in there and curled around this way and Dad closed the gate. Duke stuck that big old head over there and got him a sugar cube from Daddy and he said, And that horse, every time we would come around that elbow turn there by Happy Valley Farms and that red Chevrolet pickup truck, that horse would look up there and see that truck coming. That tail would go up and that head would go back and boy, he would make a beeline and before we could get to the gate, he'd be standing there waiting to see that old man show up there. You say, what did he find? A place of refuge. Beaten down by the rest of the world. Beaten down. Nobody wanted him. He was headed for the glue factory. The best trainers in the world couldn't do nothing with him. Preacher, what are you trying to say? Well, if you're like that horse, ready for the glue factory, there's a person, not a place, that by two immutable things promised that he would be your refuge and your anchor. You know what he said to you today? On Easter Day, resurrection morning, you know what he said to you? He said, come on, I'll be your place of refuge. Nobody wants you, I'll take you. Nobody else can do anything with you, I can do something with you. Ready for the glue factory? I can take you. Depressed, disheartened, I, I can handle you. Nobody wants nothing to do with you, come on unto me and I will give you rest. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and give you an opportunity if you would like to. Miss Pat's going to come play very softly, something on the organ. If you're not saved today, there is no better day than today to be saved. You say, why? Every resurrection, it'll be your anniversary. Maybe you're a Christian and maybe you forgot you can run to Jesus for help this morning. Maybe you forgot that you've got problems and difficulties and troubles and you know what the Lord said to you? Come here, I'll help you. Lord, nobody wants me. Nobody likes me. Nobody cares about me. Lord, I, my, my marriage is in trouble. My kids are in trouble. I got problems beyond problems. I got all kind of things. Many have come. Many are still coming. Won't you come? Come now. As she plays, don't wait. We're in no hurry. God spoke to you. You come and pray. If you need help, raise your hand. We'll pray. Otherwise, we'll leave you alone. If you're visiting today, I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm not asking you to come down to speak in tongues or do anything. I'm simply saying, come to Jesus this morning and tell Him what your problems are. Tell Him what your difficulties are. Tell Him what you need to tell Him this morning. He cares. How will He take me? Just like she's playing, just as you are. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. People are still coming. Won't you come? God spoke to you. Don't hesitate. We're almost done.
here today and you're not saved, let me tell you, it's as simple as admit you're a sinner. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means His death, burial, and resurrection. And confess Him as your Savior. It's that simple. If you're not saved, if you'll come, we'll take a Bible and show you how to be saved. You're saved by believing the gospel. And if you'll do that today, you can be saved. And if you were to die, you'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord, just like that. Just like that. And if you're lost and you leave here today and you die, just like that, you'll be in hell. And you'll burn until the day of the great white throne judgment. And after that, you'll be in the lake of fire forever. God spoke, you come. We're going to give these folks some time as she continues to play. One more stanza. One more stanza. still have a place to run to. Why? Because he not only died and was buried, but he rose again. The tomb is empty. He ever liveth to make intercession for you now. He still hears your prayers now. He still helps you now. God spoke. You come.